This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS. This week, images and the people who make them. We're heading on down to Texas for a chat with Mark McKinnon, Global Vice Chair of Hill & Knowlton Strategies, a one-time protege of the dynamic duo of James Carville and Paul Begala, and then the famed media advisor to Governor George W. Bush during the 2000 campaign. For ornithologists, Texas is a haven for rare birds. And in politics, Mark is truly a rare Texas bird, once working for Democrats, then for Republicans, now for all Americans as the co-founder of No Labels. Then, it's back up to the White House to check in with Charlie Darapak, one of the legendary shooters who cover Washington for the Associated Press. With a camera in his hand and looking through the lens, Charlie's seen it all, most recently at Camp David covering the G8, then back to Washington to cover the Secret Service hearings. The White House News Photographers Association recently named Charlie Photographer of the Year, and we'll talk to him about some of his most iconic images, notably the First Lady's trip to an Alexandria, Virginia target, wearing sunglasses and a baseball cap. But first, from Texas, we welcome Mark McKinnon, Global Vice Chair of Hill & Knowlton, founder of No Labels and a dogged advocate for damping down the partisanship that's increasingly dominating, many will say drowning out, our political discourse. Mark, welcome to Polyoptics. Hey, Josh, thanks. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Thanks for, have, thanks for coming on, man, and, and taking time out of your schedule. Look, the ambivalence you've shared in a variety of venues seems to have started at least in the open with a watershed piece you wrote for Texas Monthly in November '96. What was it like back then to begin to get these thoughts out on the table? And as I read it, and I will post it on polyoptics.com, it seems like it could have been written yesterday. Yeah, it's a little spooky, Josh. In the mid-90s, uh, had been working in politics a long time and just grew really frustrated because uh, of the hyper-partisan nature of uh, the politics seemed to be heading toward and uh, uh, and that good people were leaving office and uh, good people weren't being attracted into politics anymore. And so I, I kind of rolled up my uh, suitcase and said, uh, I'm just going to move on. And then for a variety of other reasons, I, I ambled back into it. But uh, but as I look at things today, uh, it does remind me of the, the sort of way I was feeling back then, which was an enormous amount of frustration uh, that the system seemed to be paralyzed and incapable of meeting the challenges that we face today. And it's just its exponentially worse now than it was then. And I, I was struck thinking about, you know, w- in politics, we uh, we use pattern recognition to predict the future. And so when I was thinking about this election, I thought it was a lot like 1992 when Ross Perot ran. And I went back and looked at the Gallup numbers from 92, and there, it's so much worse now than it was back then. I, it was just jaw-dropping. It's like an 80-point net swing worse than it was in 92 uh, when we thought things were pretty bad back then. Now I think the issues are so great. The difference is today that the challenges are so great and the consequences uh, are, are so uh, dramatic, and people see that, I think. So rather than a reflexive, apathetic response, I think now we're seeing people engaged just because they're so worried about what's going to happen. But I think about 1996, December 96, when you published the piece, The Spin Doctor is out in Texas Monthly, I think of those when I was at the White House that very moment of <laughs> the good old days. I mean, this was yeah. 1997. This was when uh, the balanced... Uh, 
balanced budget uh, compromise was reached between President Clinton and the, and Newt Gingrich and uh, and the Republicans in the Senate, and we had a wonderful event on the South Lawn. Uh, relative harmony compared to today. I mean, think about where you were in 96 and where you are today. Well, that's a great point, Josh, and you were right there in the middle of it, but it's, it is it is quaint to think, isn't it, that, uh, that we think of the days of, of Clinton-Gingrich as the good old days when people were getting along and actually getting something done. What happened for me was uh, I, I've always been uh, passionate about politics and public policy, and, and I remained interested in a lot of issues that I've been working on for a long time, like education reform that I started working on with uh, one of my first jobs for a Texas governor named Mark White in the 80s. And uh, I was fascinated because uh, a guy that I'd done a lot of work with, a guy named Bob Bullock, who was lieutenant governor at the time and kind of an LBJ-type character, had become a mentor for this new governor, George Bush, and they worked amazingly well together and got a lot done in a very bipartisan spirit. And George Bush was talking about issues that I really cared about, like education reform and immigration reform, which was very unlike other Republicans uh, around the country, and was talking about this notion of compassionate conservatism, which really appealed to me as as a you know as a guy who uh, was increasingly. Uh, uncomfortable in the Democratic Party, but uh, but this this you know I, I didn't see myself as a typical Republican, but but I liked the ideas that he was talking about, and uh, I had found myself falling sort of just to the right of the middle line, and was more comfortable with some of the progressive Republican things that were going on at the time, and so uh, I went uh, the lieutenant governor, the Democratic lieutenant governor, is the one who brought up the idea of me going to work for then Governor Bush, and so I, I crossed the bridge. And uh, and and then went on to work with him through the two presidentials. You uh, tweeted the other day some real admiration for the uh, cinematography and craftsmanship of the Romney ad team that put together one of their pieces about the economy. This is sort of adsmanship of a level that probably didn't exist in the 90s. Just talk a little bit about from the pure craft of ad making where you see the state of the art today. Well, um, it's uh, it, it's evolved uh, considerably uh, and one of the reasons for the evolution is that we used to be limited to uh, 30 15 or 30 seconds which was uh, very frustrating but now we have unlimited capability well I mean not unlimited but we can produce a lot more a lot richer content with a lot more thought uh, in addition to the you know the the, the, the back and forth with the 30 second uh, issues as well but you know and people who are involved are increasingly people with production and film backgrounds, and it's just getting more sophisticated. After you helped uh, Governor Bush become uh, the 43rd president of the United States, you signed on again in 2004 uh, in the campaign against John Kerry. Another thing that you've tweeted about recently was your pleasure, uh, or at least relief, that someone had leaked the proposal that was made to Joe Ricketts uh, by that, that presumed that Fred Davis might make a campaign about right. uh, about Jeremiah Wright, and yet you were involved in this campaign in 2004, producing ads for the Bush campaign, probably talking about the the positivity of his record from 2001 to 2004, and yet at the same time, uh, John Kerry was uh, being sort of uh, characterized by the Swift Boat campaign, the Swift Boat Veterans for Truth. Bring us back to 2004. You're in the, the Bush ad shop, and yet you know this this independent expenditure is going on. How did it make you feel? 
Well, uh, the the reality is that I didn't know a thing about it, and and but, and by law I was not supposed to know anything about it. And I saw that I saw the Swift Boat campaign at the same time, you know, probably you did. But that lines up very consistently with my long held opposition to any kind of third party activity like that. I mean, I'm a radical campaign finance reformer that thinks that we should eliminate any kind of third-party activity like this for which the campaigns do not have direct responsibility. That's the problem with these sort of efforts, and the one like the uh, the Ricketts plan is that, you know, camp- campaigns ought to be entirely responsible for uh, for for the messages that are are conducted on behalf or, you know, supposedly on behalf of their candidacy. Uh, and the way the laws are written right now, which I think are just completely insane, you can have anybody out there like a Phil Rickett or whoever it is raise unlimited money, often undisclosed, and run off with messages that, that, that quite often are entirely off message from what the campaigns intend to be communicating. So there, there's a real problem in the system, and, uh, and unfortunately the recent Supreme Court decision has just – uh, not only enabled that kind of activity, but uh, but encouraged it. So then ca- then comes uh, 2008, Mark, and having brought a Texas governor into the White House, got him reelected, you'd think you would be in high demand by the McCain campaign, and yet, despite sort of being friendly to Senator McCain and Mrs. McCain, you largely stay on the sidelines in 2008. Why was that? Well, I actually didn't stay on the sidelines at first. It was an unusual situation. I, I long admired Senator McCain, even in 2000. Uh, and I was actually the, the one guy in the Bush campaign that was sort of, you know, would at least have conversations with the McCain campaign um, and, and and long supported all his efforts on campaign finance reform and McCain-Feingold so, and, and always respected the sacrifices he'd made for the country. So I got to know him. Uh, throughout those campaigns and in 2004 when he helped the president. And then, you know, I said, listen, if I can ever do anything to to help you for all that you've done, let me know. And, and, and you know, I would have been glad to go down and mow his lawn in Arizona, whatever. Uh, but then he ran for president and asked me to come help. And I, and I did something a little unusual, which was uh, I wrote a memo to him and, and the campaign on the first day. And I said, um, it's an honor for me to work for Senator McCain, for you, Senator, uh, and I'll do all I can to help you uh, in the primary. But if you are the general election nominee and this guy, Barack Obama, is the general election uh, nominee, then I would feel uncomfortable continuing in my capacity as, as the lead media guy uh, because I, I've, I'd met Obama, I'd read all his work, and I, and I liked him. And I do like him, and I think he's a man of great character and talent. And I thought his I thought his candidacy would be good for the country, even though I disagree with him on most political things. So they said fine, but of course nobody thought that was going to happen at the time. And then flash forward another year and a half, and you know Obama's the nominee, and I have to go to McCain and say, oh hey, uh, remember that memo? Remember that memo? <laughs> Dust that piece off. <laughs> yeah, and that was very difficult because, as you know. Uh, when you're in a campaign, it's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, and and you know you do you, know, you come to see all those uh, colleagues as brothers and sisters, and uh, it's very it was very hard to walk away. But McCain, to his credit, said, "God bless you. I love you for helping me get where we got to get win the primary, and it would be very un-McCain-like to do anything else." So uh, uh, 
God bless you and carry on. So I, I left for the general election, and ultimately the way things went, I, I'm glad I did. What's what's your reflection on, on how history will look on John McCain after the 2008 effort? You know, I think, I hope that the book's not done yet, because I, you know, there's a real, there's a real heart and soul in that guy that I think is deeply patriotic and deeply independent. And uh, so my view is that there's another chapter or two left in the book on McCain. You know, I think he's going to live, uh, you know, at least as long as his mother did, which was, you know, past, I think she's still alive. She's like 101. Pillar of Georgetown. Yeah, exactly. She, and she's a she's a pistol, a pistolita, and uh, and so I, you know, I see. I my view is that uh, over time, that that he's going to be uh, a key component, a key figure in addressing some of these huge challenges we have, like on Im- immigration reform and some of the really tough issues, where he's got great credibility, and I think can really be a bridge to either a Democratic administration or to a Democratic minority. So comes along 2010, uh, President Obama has a rough time in the midterm elections, and uh, you were involved in the founding of something called No Labels. And I want to hear uh, about a minute of a, of a promotional piece that's on the No Labels website, and then talk a little bit about the organization, and then some of the things you've written about it recently. Washington has a big secret it doesn't want you to know. We know Congress isn't working, but it doesn't have to be that way. Congress can work. Until now, everyone is focused on ideas like getting money out of politics or stopping the gerrymandering of congressional districts. All great ideas, but we don't have the time to wait. That's why No Labels, a large and rapidly growing movement of frustrated Republicans, Democrats, and Independents, has prepared a 12-point action plan of simple changes to make Congress work. Each of these fixes can be easily and quickly implemented by Congress, and taken together, the plan would make an immediate impact to break gridlock and finally move this country forward. The idea is so simple, no wonder no one's thought of it. But now that you know the secret, we need your help to expose it. Visit nolabels.org to learn more and sign on to support the Make Congress Work Action Plan. You're listening to our conversation with Mark McKinnon on Polyoptics, Sirius XM Channel 124, POTUS. Mark, we've heard that piece. Is bring it, Tell us about the founding of No Labels and has it grown fast enough and powerful enough to make an impact this year? Uh, the answer to both of those is yes, uh, substantially. It started uh, a little over a year ago with the notion that uh, because of Citizens United and a lot of other factors, the system has become hyper-polarized by partisanship and uh, unable to meet the challenges that we're facing. So we're trying to give – we thought that a, another voice needed to be out there to give cover to people who thought it was actually okay to work across – the aisle and uh, try and reach some consensus that we know we have to get in order to in order to solve some of our very pressing problems. And uh, in just over a year, we've uh, we've got uh, more than 500,000 members now who are very active in every single congressional and senate district across the country, and have been very active in uh, in talking to their members and people running for office, and uh, and have gotten behind this 12-step recovery plan, as I call it, for Congress. Uh, that's that's got a lot of great ideas, like uh, no budget, no pay, which is uh, uh, a pretty 
pretty reasonable idea that uh, if if Congress doesn't pass a budget, then they then they don't get paid. And as we know, budget is policy. And if we could create a stick and some leverage for them to, you know, the Senate hasn't passed a budget in three years. And so uh, we think if they if they weren't getting their paychecks, that they might move a little more quickly than three years. But lots of things like that, like the uh, other uh, just common sense ideas, like 90 day up or down vote on presidential appointments. I was appointed to uh, uh, the Broadcasting Board of Governors by 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 President Bush and was unconfirmed for four years. And it had nothing to do with me, but it had to do with partisan politics between Harry Reid and the Republican leadership and fights that went back to the Hatfields and McCoys, but, you know, it's it's unfair to elect a president and then have thousands of government positions that, that, are, that are, you know, a lot of them much more important than the one I was appointed to, a lot of judicial appointments and, and others that are important to making government work that simply aren't being filled, and that's ridiculous. So we should have an up or down vote in 90 days. That's the sort of common sense thinking that most Americans can agree with. All common sense, but fast enough to sort of save the likes of Dick Luger or Orrin Hatch or Olympia Snow and get them to stick it out or, or win their primaries? Well, I mean, you know, Olympia Snow is a great example. She's somebody who said, uh, you know, we, uh, we're, we're gonna, we were going to mobilize and help her out. Uh, and, and then she looked at uh, what the experience was like being in the Senate these days, and and she made the, the decision to leave the Senate and not run a campaign for re-election, not because she thought she was going to lose, but because she thought she was going to win. It was pretty certain she was going to win. And she said, you know what, I just don't want to go back to that environment. I don't feel like we're making any progress. We're not doing anything uh, to move the ball forward, and maybe I can be you know, a, a, a greater force outside the Senate. And that's just a testament to how screwed up things are. Could a woman in her position ever get on a podium with Angus King and say, I endorse this guy based on what he represents? Absolutely. You bet. Absolutely. Angus King is a great example of that, and I, and I wouldn't be surprised to see Olympia Snow do something just like that. So for our listeners who aren't familiar with Maine politics, uh, <clears throat> my, my good buddy, uh, Angus King III, who I worked with in the uh, Clinton White House, his dad was the two-term independent governor of Maine, always with a very fierce independent streak, walked away from politics, got in a, an RV and traveled across the country, and I think had really stayed on the sidelines watching waiting perhaps and and being becoming a businessman for an opportunity like this when when someone who <clears throat> even me as a democrat uh has great respect for an olympia snow walks away with the message that she walked away with uh here here to fill the void comes angus king and i wonder mark if if someone like angus is someone that you could put your stirrups on again for and can you replicate that model in in other races do you see that happening anywhere else uh, no, uh, yes, absolutely, and we're seeing a, a lot more activity like this. The Noblesse community has been very active up in Maine and, and strongly supportive of Angus King and uh, and, and what he's doing up there. Uh, and, and we're seeing, uh, you know, the very interesting mayor's race in San Diego now, where uh, somebody is announced as an independent and could win that race out there. So uh, there's a huge hunger for it out there. I mean, people just feel like the institutions of government and the, the typical approaches from either party aren't working and they're looking for alternative ways. So uh, pe- people are looking for disruption and uh, we're trying to give them some, some ways to exercise that idea. So you wrote recently in a somewhat, I guess, wistful tone, and I don't know if it was in the Telegraph or the Daily Beast, uh, about how uh, no labels didn't attract or, or, or one of the programs that you're supporting has not yet attracted that presidential candidate or the activity on the site that you uh, would have liked to have seen. Can you share with our listeners what that's about? 
Yeah, that's a, that's a different uh, uh, organization called Americans Elect, which was seeking to uh, to a create ballot access for anybody who wanted to run for president, and then uh, through a technology platform, allow to basically create like a national primary where people could vote via the internet for uh, for candidates that would be on a ballot line. Uh, this year, and they did a terrific job of creating the ballot access. They they put together the technology, and and what we discovered was that people are not yet. Uh, um, first of all, the technology had to be really secure, so that meant that in order to vote and register, it was much like uh, qualifying for a credit card because they wanted to make sure that that it was a secure system, which was the first order of business. And we discovered that that people are you know are not yet ready to to turn over their personal information uh in order to vote and at least the drop off was like 400,000 who initially registered an interest and dropped off to 40 uh, and and more importantly we you know thought that some if you eliminated the if you built the house they would come we get some interesting candidates and there were some like Buddy Romer uh a former congressman and governor of Louisiana who's a terrific guy but uh uh but, you know, there were lots of talk about people like Mike Bloomberg or John Huntsman or others that would step up, and they ultimately didn't. And I think uh, we can speculate on a lot of reasons why, but they either thought they couldn't win or they thought they might be seen as somebody who'd throw, uh, take votes away from their their, 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 their their preferred candidate. So, listen, it was, a, it, was a, it was a bold and innovative idea with huge challenges and I think planted the seed because what we do know is that um, – that people want more choices, and it's ironic that we're the only democracy in the world that only offers two choices. But people are increasingly unhappy with with both the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, and I think that in the future, sometimes somehow there there will be alternatives like this idea that Americans elect started. Yeah, I mean, you you spoke, uh, you wrote so. Uh, um, in it, it, let me pick that up. We'll re- redo it. Um, and speaking of Buddy Romer, Mark, I mean, you you wrote so glowingly about your work with him in that original Texas Monthly piece. You talked about this watershed ad in which he looks to camera and says, <clears throat> I notice my opponents don't make many people angry. That doesn't surprise you, does it? Politics as usual. I don't like Louisiana politics. I love Louisiana. I love Louisiana enough to make some people angry. And you talk about Buddy Romer as someone who Americans elect there, he was the person who seemed to bubble up the most. And as you are a frequent guest on Morning Joe, so is Buddy. And the things that he says make a lot of sense. And yet it's been a long time, one, since Buddy has held office, and two, Buddy's bank account isn't so large. But if you look at someone like Mike Bloomberg, who says a lot of similar things and has a much larger bank account, what do you see as the future of the outgoing mayor of New York in national politics and what, what he could do to it? Well, yeah, good point. Uh, I mean, Buddy Romer, uh, 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 because he feels so strongly about uh, money uh, corrupting the, the, our, our system, that he ran with $100 caps, which obviously uh, created uh, you know, a big challenge for him and, uh, to get his message out. And he was unfortunate. I mean, the, the, the message that you just related, I would love to have seen magnified through a, a large amplifier in this election because I think it had terrific resonance, but Buddy couldn't even get into one of the debates, even though, you know, a pizza mogul could, and, you know, a guy with the kind of record that Romer had couldn't. But that that uh, that says a lot about the system as well. Uh, but, 
you know, I, I think the idea of eliminating that hurdle so that so that not just the Mike Bloomberg's can do this is a really good idea, and I and I hope that others will pick up that baton. But I also hope that people like Mike Bloomberg. One of the challenges too is this was an incumbent election year, and and, right. and next time and in the future when there aren't incumbents, it's going to make it easier for you know a a an alternative uh, uh, idea to emerge. I think when when the when it's when it's not being when there's not the shadow of an incumbent hanging over it. So Mayor Bloomberg can work on a short game for a few years in Bermuda and then uh, emerge hand-rested and ready in 2014. <laughs> I think the system's going to be ready and, uh, and, and anxious to uh, look at somebody like that in the future. But this is an incumbent election, Mark. And before we let you go, I'd love to get your take, that, that word take, on where things stand <laughs> between uh, President Obama and Governor Romney uh, and certainly the noise surrounding it, things like... Bain Capital, things like Jeremiah Wright, um, yeah. the, the notion that when you take, uh, when you look at polls that filter out for very likely voters, you have a very close race, especially in battleground states. You were in one. You were in the closest election in history in 2000. Do you see a, a, something similar to that happening in 2012? Uh, big time. I mean, we could see an exact replay, and I've never been happier that I'm not in a campaign because, you know, I've been through the human microwave, and uh, uh, and I know what these guys are going through. And this race is, is going to be a lot like 2000. It's going to be a lot like 2004, uh, in, you know, in the sense that it's going to be close. It's going to come down to, you know, one or two uh, battleground states that's going to swing the election. It's going to be uh, it's just going to be day-to-day combat like we've seen already, and it's only May, and it's just going to get tougher, closer, and uh, and 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 meaner. You know, I mean, it's really going to be a dogfight down to the end, and uh, it's uh, it's it's you know, it's going to be fascinating to watch because uh, you know I could make an argument either way, but uh, but right now it's a jump ball. Mark McKinnon, Global Vice Chair of uh, Hill and Knowlton Strategies, founder of No Labels. Thank you so much for spending a few minutes with us on Polyoptics today. Hey, I'm a big fan of the show, big fan of POTUS, big fan of Polyoptics, big fan of Sirius at XM. Thanks for coming, Mark. Thank you. Well, you've just had a 30,000-foot view of the political process from Mark McKinnon, political strategist for Governor Bush, President Bush, uh, Democrats before that, and now the founder of No Labels. But as you know from our premise on Polyoptics, as Adam Belmar and I have said many times before, one of the jobs of us as directors of production at the White House is to create moments that uh, photographers, photojournalists, videographers, reporters who are looking at the the backdrop and the setting can weave into their stories. We've always uh, or often compared the process of what we do at the White House to being a filmmaker, except that the director and the cinematographer are not people that we necessarily work with. What comes out on the other end, what comes on the the front page of the newspaper is basically what the photojournalist or the videographer is interpreting of what they see in front of them. We are very lucky today to have in our studio Charlie Darapak, AP photographer uh, based in the Washington Bureau, has covered the presidencies of George W. Bush and Barack Obama, was named by the White House News Photographers Association uh, as Photographer of the Year in 2011 for some images that we'll talk about. But first, want to get to know him a little bit. Charlie, welcome to Polyoptics. Thanks for having me, Josh. When was the first time you picked up a camera? I remember the first time I probably bought my own camera was uh, at the airport in uh, Tokyo. I was probably about 
13, 14 years old, and uh, we were vacationing with my family for the summer. It was uh, one of those 110 film Fuji cameras. And were you a fan of photojournalists at that point, or was it just a, a, one, a 110 Instamatic that you wanted to play around with? It was more a 110 Instamatic. My, my interest in photojournalism actually came kind of late, uh, towards the end of my time at uh, NYU, where I was already studying uh, print journalism, but uh, an elective in photojournalism made me realize that the picture can't be edited nearly as much as uh, the written word, so it, it kind of stuck. And how did it begin for you then, and as a professional? As a professional, I I was in the right place at the right time. Um, I was in Bangkok, Thailand in 1995. I was already doing a, a bit of photography on the side, just some street photography, and uh, someone had suggested that I ring up the AP office in Bangkok just to see how the business worked. I called just to chat, and they thought I was calling to ask for a job, and there happened to be an opening, so the rest, as they say, is history. So uh, a few weeks ago marked the passing of Horst Foss uh, that you wrote a lot about uh, or you tweeted a lot about, and you called him one of your mentors. Can you talk about him and some of the other people who sort of shaped the type of shooter that you became, which I'd say is not that long a period from 95 to the present day. That's, what, 17 years. It's true. It actually has not been that long, but I've seen a lot of uh, transformation in the business, most of it having to do with going from film to digital. Um, When I started in Bangkok, I was lucky to meet a lot of Vietnam War-era photographers, uh, people like Philip Jones Griffiths, uh, people like Nick Utt, who were still coming to the region to visit and to do independent projects. Horst Foss I actually met in uh, in Ho Chi Minh City uh, in Saigon in 2000 during the 25th anniversary of the end of the war. So we met, uh, we covered the anniversary together, and about a year and a half later, he invited me to take part in a photojournalism workshop that he was organizing with Tim Page for Vietnamese photojournalists. Um, Horst actually really uh, gave back to the the, the Vietnamese uh, uh, photography community in Vietnam. Um, he had an idea to do this workshop. He invited uh, notable photojournalists such as uh, Gary Knight and James Nockway. It was the first photojournalism course taught for Vietnamese uh, photographers uh, since the end of the war. So we we got to know each other a bit then. Uh, I was still based in Jakarta, so I was covering a bit of unrest and uh, conflict, and we we had some long conversations over a few bottles of wine in Vietnam. How did you eventually find your way from Ho Chi Minh City to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and the beat that was occupied by people that I worked with, people like Doug Mills of the AP, Scott Applewhite, Wilfredo Lee, Ron Edmonds, real legends in what they do, and, and now uh, the next in line, Charlie Darapak, News Photographer of the Year. You know, I'd, I'd been working overseas at that point for eight years, and I was I was ready for a change, and uh, I was exchanging some emails with Horst, and uh, he had suggested that I apply for a job in Washington, and, and I did want to work with people like Ron Edmonds and Scott Applewhite and Doug Mills, so... This was this was in October of uh, 2002. I applied for a vacancy and uh, and I got the job. At first, uh, my bosses were a little surprised that I wanted to trade what I was doing to fo- to photograph politics. But you know, I, I I felt I was ready for a new challenge, and uh, I saw that the Bush White House was was a, a White House that was getting a lot of uh, international uh, interest because of the the post 9/11 world, and uh, and there I was. How is it to work under those circumstances of people who say, um, okay, pool, crowd up here behind this rope, uh, and then we'll let you through to the Oval Office to take this picture 
of the president and uh, his visiting heads of state. And, oh, by the way, you only have 35 seconds to make a frame. Is that the kind of photojournalism that, that <laughs> lends itself to great artwork? No, that, cer that certainly isn't the kind of photojournalism that I did before coming to Washington. But you know what? Even to have that opportunity of 35 seconds to make a picture, for me, I feel that just get me in the room. That is that is 90% of it, you know, to, to be able to be in that room when something's happening. And then it's it's really up to you what moments you look for and what, what moments you capture. But really the hardest part in, in covering the White House is is getting that access, is, is getting into that closed room. What are some of the moments of the Bush years that stand out for you as, as wonderful access and wonderful images? I think what, what stands out about President Bush was how he reacted to situations that he was in. He sort of had his way of, of interfacing, of, of, of uh, meeting people that, that really came across, for me, came, came across well for, for the camera. You know, he'd, we'd be on a foreign trip somewhere. He'd, you know, there, there would, of course, you know, you've, you've worked in advance. You, there's some sort of stagecraft set up that the president is going to come in and meet students in his school. But if, if, if the president walks in and, and he doesn't do anything and it's flat, then it doesn't, it doesn't really translate in the pictures. But with President Bush, he always seemed to, he always seemed to have a good time with it, I think. And it, it, it kind of it seemed to come naturally for him. Did, um, we saw this week after uh, President Obama gave his commencement address to the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, um, the, the usual tradition is that the cadets throw their hats in the air. There's a flyover of, of <clears throat> the Air Force Thunderbirds, uh, and then and then uh, that's the end of the event. There are some photographers who have a lucky chance to be along that trip and could find themselves in the right angle. This week, it was uh, the New York Times' Steve Crowley, who, who must have gotten quite low and shot up through the, the waving arms of the cadets, seeing their hats, and the uh, Thunderbirds in perfect formation. What was your reaction to seeing a picture like that on the front page of the New York Times? Fantastic photo, fantastic photo. But you know, as as they say in Washington, it's you know, photo political photography is is a game of inches, and that that was probably a situation where 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 Crowley was. He it just lined up. You know, I've I've actually done that graduation before also, and there were years when the timing of the flyover doesn't quite work out with the hat toss. You'll you'll get the hats in the air, and the planes will come by later. A lot of it is is serendipity. A lot of it is things out, out of your control. But but you know, if you look at all the pictures that that were shot of that, Steve got Steve was in the right place. He happened to be in that right piece of real estate that uh that that the picture worked out for him. And and share with our listeners who might not understand the difference between. A guy like Crowley or Mills assigned to cover something for the New York Times versus Charlie Darapak uh, shooting for the AP. The different kind of constraints that you're under to almost uh, archive or, or document that the actual uh, event rather than allow your lens to open up or look at a different angle that might not include the the principle that you're assigned to cover, in this case, the president. It's it's really not so different. I mean, now with the the New York Times being in the amongst the traveling still photographers that fly on Air Force One and, the, and that are in every motorcade, and as long as you you know, I mean, you you should always keep your eye on the president. But you know, there are times when you can afford to take a chance to go for a slightly different angle to get a slightly different picture. You know, it, it's 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 on a case by case basis that that you have to make that decision. Is is it worth giving up? this angle to try something a little different but also we we have to think competitively uh, competitively also because AP is also traveling with Reuters and AFP who are considered competitors although we're we're great friends and we love to have beers at the end of the day 
Talking about beers for a second, uh, as I said, I mean, we welcomed you. You were named by the News Photographer Association of the White House as Photographer of the Year for 2011, and a bunch of your uh, images uh, got in the final set of the award winners. One of them, uh, actually, the uh, the presidential second place was Charlie Darapak for his photo of President Barack Obama drinking Guinness beer at a pub in Ireland. Now, we've seen Ronald Reagan drink beer. I've seen Bill Clinton drink beer. We never saw President George Bush drink regular beer, maybe non-alcoholic. <laughs> but what about this image, a fairly normal image, makes it the an award winner for the year? What I, what I liked about that picture was, you know, you're always trying to get the president in some sort of situation that is natural. Okay, sure. Here's the president doing something that the locals do. You know, and uh, he, and I think he enjoyed the beer. He he took at least three sips out of it while we were there, and before we were let out, and then we were told he uh, had a second pint. Another one, uh, again, capturing President Obama in ways that make him unique from other presidents is you see him in sort of half jogging stride on the tarmac, coming from Air Force One, and there's a uh, a piece of uh, electronic equipment sort of bouncing off the tarmac by his feet. That's another award winner of yours. Can you tell us about that shot? Correct. That is his uh, beloved uh, uh, Blackberry. And uh, if I were to tell you that was the first time I made a picture of President dropping his Blackberry, I'd be lying to you. Um, If you remember when he first became president, there was a lot of discussion of whether or not he was going to keep his Blackberry. Uh, He ended up keeping it. And it's uh, you. You often see him using it, and uh, in that particular picture, I forget where we were. Maybe in Kansas City, we were. We were. Uh, we had just gotten off Air Force One, and he was jogging across the tarmac to uh, greet a bunch of uh, well wishers on a rope line, and and I, uh, his BlackBerry must have fallen off his belt at that moment. As you're looking through the lens and you see the device bounce, I mean, do you say, "Man, Charlie"? lucky lucky timing, lucky positioning, lucky that my finger's on the shutter. Do you know that you have a good one at that point? No, it, sometimes you don't because the, the moments, the pictures are actually when, when there's the blackout in the shutter. I mean, photographers often say if you saw the picture in your viewfinder, you actually missed it because the moment of exposure, there's that blackout. Right. So you never really know until you, uh, you, you take the card out of the camera, put it in your laptop, and you start editing. That also reminds me of a, a photograph that I had taken a few years earlier in Beijing of, uh, of President Bush uh, stuck at a door at, after a press conference. You know, we, we were standing there. We saw him go towards this door. He yanked on the door and walked out. It didn't but, open. But, yeah, the door didn't open, and then, he, and then uh, he, he ended up going out the other way. But you didn't, you didn't quite see that expression that he had until, until uh, I, I went through my files afterwards because it's, it's, it's those split seconds that happen during the viewfinder blackout. I, I I remember that photo, and I remember commenting either it was on the record or just with a friend that I thought, and I think, did did the Times not, did the Times use your shot on page one? Yes. Uh, the New York Times actually used uh, four. A, a series. A series, a series. Four of my photos of, of that moment on, on page one. I, I don't criticize the photographer for keeping his finger on the, on the, on the shutter, but I did at the time feel very critical toward the photo editors uh, of the Times. And I, I used to uh, deal directly with Lonnie Schlein, and I, I love New York Times photography, and yet I thought it made the president look silly for just putting his hand on the wrong doorknob. You know, in, in my job, I take those pictures, you know, it happened. You know, he, the president was stuck at a door. 
I don't make any editorial decisions not to send a picture. It, it was something that happened. It was caught by, by television cameras. It was caught by still cameras. I caption those pictures. I transmit them out. But how, how they end up being used or where they're played, that's, that's out of my control. And so what did you think when you saw The Times the next day? I would say that was probably the first time in my life that I've had I've actually had four pictures on the front cover of the New York Times. But uh, I think uh, I think the newspaper was on the on Air Force One the next morning, and uh, not too many uh, White House staffers were talking to me that morning. Uh, I bet, I bet. Let's talk about another one of your uh, award-winning shots from last year. You capture Speaker of the House John Boehner in a very in a moment that's sort of been um, expressed as. as sort of a classic Boehner moment. He's wiping away tears. What, is that something that you've seen before? And what was, what was what struck you about that moment? I'm actually, I'm not actually on the Hill that often. And when I, that, that was the day that, um, that uh, former Speaker Pelosi handed the gavel to uh, Speaker Boehner. And I actually was quite, I was quite surprised at how emotional he was. And uh, he didn't seem to be ashamed to show it. And, uh, you know, he, he, his eyes welled up. He wiped away tears. He pulled out a handkerchief. He wiped his eyes, and you know it. It, it seemed it seemed real to me. He 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 was emotional. It 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 was a big moment for him. Talking about covering the hill, uh, I watched the photo stream of the shots you had yesterday of Secret Service Director Mark Sullivan testifying by uh, in front of the Senate committee. People like um, uh, um, Susan Collins, Joe Lieberman. A very tough testimony. Um, share with our listeners what the assignment is like to walk into a committee room and how small you have to get, the angles that you try and get. What's the strategy for covering a hearing? For a hearing, you, of course, you need to get the, the witnesses. You need to get the, the, the committee chairperson, the, the, uh, with, with, this, uh, with this Senate, the ranking uh, Republican. But what's, what I do is I, I try to do my homework beforehand. You know, when, once I know what the hearing is that I'm going to cover, I try to read up as much as I can about the hearing. I try to read up and see uh, what certain senators have to say about about the case but uh with with yesterday's hearing in particular it, it was it was an interesting hearing because when uh director sullivan showed up a lot of uh senior secret service agents also showed up some of which i i recognized from from the bush administration they, they were all uh, sitting in the audience there in support of uh of director sullivan so it 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 was it was uh it, it was an interesting uh hearing for me to cover I could definitely see through your images the the strain that Mark must have must be enduring over the last uh, six weeks or so. Yes, yes, and you know, in in my in my almost ten years of of covering the White House, the Secret Service officers that I've worked with, the Secret Service agents that I've worked with, have have been the most professional members of law enforcement that I've come in contact with. So, Charlie, I'd love to ask you about uh, the big picture from last year, also in your portfolio that made you White House News Photographer Association Photographer of the Year. The picture of First Lady Michelle Obama at a Target store in Alexandria, Virginia. Was that on your uh, your AP assignment editor list that sent you out to Alexandria? That that was a that was a unique situation. Um, through some source work on my part, I was able to. Uh, I was able to be at that target. Uh, I got there about an hour, two hours before I saw the first lady come. Uh, maybe about half an hour before she showed up, I saw some Secret Service agents that I recognized, and uh, they recognized me. So I was, I was, I was sitting quietly. Um, my camera was out of view. I was, I, I was. They felt comfortable with my presence there. So when I saw the first lady walk in, she 
she walked in dressed as she was, uh, as, as you saw in the picture. She walked in with an aide. And I decided not to uh, follow her around the store because I, I didn't want to give away the fact to Target that I was in the store because they, you know, they have a no photography rule. So after about a half an hour or so, she uh, showed up at the cash register. So I, I walked up to the cash cashier and took a couple of quick pictures and in the picture uh, there's a there's a man wearing a, a yellow ball cap and a white t-shirt that's her lead secret service agent who who recognized me and he sort of asked me to sort of hang back a bit and not and not draw attention to the first lady because by that time no one still recognized her she she had gone completely unrecognized and um, she finished her shopping and she walked out through the front of the store with her cart and that's where I made my pictures. So you gave her the benefit of her full thirty-minute shop op before, uh, before making that shot. Yes, yes. I, I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to blow any opportunity on my part to make a picture in terms of uh, giving away my presence to, uh, to the store. And I, I know the usual uh, uh, kit that a, an AP photographer brings with them. How, how differently were you equipped on this day for this kind of an assignment versus your usual gear? I actually had some shopping to do myself, so I, I got to the store early. I had one camera with uh, one lens, and I bought some birthday presents for my son. Had the camera hidden under uh, under some shopping, and uh, when it was time for me to make the picture, I just took out the one camera, stood in a corner, and she walked past by me, and I made my pictures. So if you recognize the advance agents uh, who are doing the who are preparing the visit in a very low-key way, and they recognize you... Um, as a as an advanced man myself, you know there's there's always a uh, sit report that goes into the motorcade as it comes, whether it's an OTR trip like this or an official event, and the site agent's responsible for saying the number of uh, public, the number of press, uh, and the situation in general. So one has to presume, based on the way you laid it out, that the first lady understood that you would be in the store in some ways. Is that your view? Um, I don't think she saw me until I, I made those pictures at the end. I, I wasn't aware of the the site agent and the site report thing that you had just mentioned, so I, I actually don't know what what they made of it. Um, what was the reaction to that kind of a shot? When it, I mean, look, it it took a I can't remember how long it took from the moment she shopped till it got on the wire. But can you can you tell us how it what happened after she left the store and there you are with your one camera at Target? She she walked out of the store. I actually followed her out to see her get into her vehicle. She actually it was one SUV parked in the back so she got in and she drove off I immediately went to my car filed the pictures I called my White House reporters and I told them uh, what had just happened and then I remembered I had some shopping that I didn't pay for yet so <laughs> I went back into the store and I actually went through I went through the same exact checkout line that she did because I wanted a chance to talk to the the checkout guy and and I asked him hey did you uh, did you recognize the VIP that went through your lane and he looked at me and he said ah yes mrs. Obama yes I, I recognized her and he said he, he just had a, a small exchange with her as she was paying for her items and uh, he didn't think anything of it uh, and he just continued with his shift that's such a great story uh, and and it was a it was an amazing picture and I'm sure it certainly put at least for those who hadn't followed you before Charlie Darapak on the map um, just final thoughts, Charlie. You know, uh, this week marked the um, the G8 conference uh, that had originally been held uh, scheduled for Chicago. It was moved for a variety of reasons. Some said uh, to limit the uh, logistical strain on the city of Chicago and the, the protesters that might come out. But it made for a very, very intimate 
G8 as seen through your lens at Camp David. What was the experience of shooting a G8 in such a low-key setting compared to those scrums that you've been so involved with at, at major events with so much bustle around you? This was actually the first time uh, while covering the Obama administration that uh, that President Obama had decided to do something at Camp David. I mean, he he had gone there for weekends to uh, to relax and to rest. But compared to the Bush administration, pre- President Bush hosted many many leaders up at Camp David. And when when I when I heard that the G8 was going to be held up there, I was I was actually excited. And um, we got we got to see a bit more of Camp David this time around. Um, the first night, he welcomed the leaders at uh, Laurel Lodge which I believe was the site of where uh, President Clinton hosted uh, Israeli Prime Minister Barack and uh, Yasser Arafat for the Camp David Accords. And um, the next morning, they uh, did a group photo, a family photo, at, on the putting green behind uh, his cabin, which is called Aspen Lodge. So we, we, we got to see a bit of Camp David, and uh, they actually held the press in, in the chapel that they have up there. But the, but the unfortunate thing is the Marines are very strict with photography on uh, Camp David, so we, we were watched over very, very closely by, by Marines, and we actually had to put uh, camera hoodies. They, were actually, they gave us shower caps that we had to put on, our, on the front hmm. of our lenses just to make sure that we weren't sneaking uh, sneaking pictures of anything we weren't supposed to be taking pictures of, and we we actually had to keep those those shower caps on on our lenses up until the moment before we we would take a picture. So they they're they're pretty strict up there. How's it working with a guy like Pete Souza, who uh, you are allowed to see more of Camp David than you've ever been allowed to see, and there, and yet then there is Pete, who can take pictures of President Obama giving uh, the Prime Minister of Japan a birthday cake or the G8 leaders uh, in their casual clothes watching a European football match, the kinds of behind-the-scenes stuff that, to the average reader, they don't necessarily read uh, the caption or the slug or the byline, and you'd think, uh, boy, that photographer really got a great shot, and you have to read a little closer to see that it's a, a handout photo versus the kind of shots that you're allowed to make. Yes, yes. Pete, Pete Souza is a fantastic photographer, uh, but what, what he does is, uh, is, is very different from what we do as uh, members of the White House uh, traveling press pool. Um, we surely don't see anywhere near as much as he does, and, and I, I wish we were in the room when all those leaders were watching that soccer game, and, uh, and I wish we were in the room when he was giving the president of Japan a, a birthday cake. Well, Charlie Darapak, you do show us an enormous amount of what goes on in Washington, whether it's at the White House, on Capitol Hill, uh, around the courthouses, even in an ice cream parlor. So. For all the work that you've done since uh, picking up a camera for the first time and for all that you will do covering this very historic campaign, thanks very much. Look forward to seeing your work on the front page. Thanks for having me, Josh.